1: Attention, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. Broadcasting from the Rock and Roll Bombshell, surrounded by radioactive biscuits and the world-famous Rock Cop. Located 40 feet beneath the radio station,
2: it's the Big Fat American American Rock Rock, Show With your host, the Doc of Rock. The Professor. Everyone's favorite mad music magician. Crazy Uncle. And your best friend in the whole wide world, Zach Martin, new HD, newhd.com, where rock lives. <laughs> you and I are like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Mutt and Jeff of radio. We've always worked together, and we've, we've, I mean, amazing amount of work together. And it's, it's sort of weird to me that you and I have never sat in the same room together or uh, this, this kind of configuration. And had an interview. We, we've we never done a professional interview with each other. It's weird.
1: And it's what? What do I know? You're 35, uh, 25, 30 years? 30 <laughs> Almost years. 30 years,
2: yeah. Jeez. Maybe more. I mean, I can remember. Uh, yeah, it was know,
1: more because it was in the, uh, yeah, it was more. Yeah. Was late 80s. Yeah, late 80s. So 90s, pretty much
2: 36 years. So yeah. we go uh, back a long way. Uh Denny Somak, uh I would say in the radio industry, you're a household name. You've written books, you uh, are a rock and roll historian, uh, great friend, you, you, you're very talented. You've been on the air as a disc jockey. Uh, was it YSP and MMR or just YSP? No, YSP. Okay.
1: And then NBC.
2: And then NBC. So you you got quite the creds. I mean, just uh, an enormous uh, and an amazing background. Uh, if someone was to, let, let's let's do this exercise. If you were to write your resume and it it was to give you that one little summary about who Denny Somak is,
1: what would that look like? What would that read about well, Denny? Well, what I'm trying to become, and I am, I'm a rock historian. That's my main thing, and then I'm a producer and a writer and an author. But I like to be known as a rock historian.
2: Yeah, I think that that's that's spot on, rock historian, because. Your knowledge of a group like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, we'll get into some of that shortly, is just amazing. And and how uh, you come up with these little behind-the-scenes stories and information, these little nuggets. I don't know. At one point I had, um, I, I'm really interested in, in these artists. It, I, I probably n- hardly have ever said no to an interview. I remember Petula Clark coming in yeah here here she is in her 80s and all the rock jocks are just like i don't want to interview her i mean why would i want to interview her only to find out and this blows everybody's mind when they hear it and i don't remember if you told me about this or something i found i think you
1: actually i know exactly what you're where you're going with it and you were going to send me a copy and you never did i hope you still have it
2: you know that was right before the pandemic. I don't know. I'll have to track it down. But this is amazing. I'll tell you. Why don't you tell a story about Patula Clark and a famous guitarist?
1: Well, uh, now you were going to interview. Let me see if I remember this correctly. You were going to interview Patula Clark. Nobody else wanted to, but you did. Yeah. And I said, told you a couple of things. Number one, on her first big record, Downtown. The guitarist on there is Jimmy Page. That's number <laughs> lot one. Don't number two, it. I think I also told you that she happened to be in Toronto when Give Peace a Chance was recorded and she's actually in the room and sings backup. Right. I think I told you those two facts those a two Zeppelin facts. and a Beatles story.
2: Yeah. And the Zeppelin and the Beatles story, which is great, actually made the interview sparkle because I was asking her questions that nobody asked before and she really appreciated that. Right. Yeah. You know, she is really cool. And back in the day, man, uh, I can just imagine. I bet you, Jimmy Page fancied her. Oh boy,
1: right? Well, she's still in touch with him, from what I understand. to yeah. still, you know. And and, and do
2: you, do you know the reason why she ended up uh, on that recording? And I I thought it was Montreal. Could have been Toronto, or wherever. But do you know when she ends up on that recording? Oh, I think you're right. It is Montreal. You're Montreal, right. Montreal, the bed in, yeah. right? Yeah, the bed in. She she ends up. On that recording, because she was seeking John Lennon's advice, did you uh-huh. hear the rest of the rock and roll story on that?
1: I know a little bit, but please tell the story. Well, she
2: was performing in Montreal, and in Montreal, you and she speaks fluent French, All right? And it seems to me, and and in Montreal they have a different type of French. It's like a what we would call a comparable to high church Latin. Okay, there's a little bit different emphasis on how they say things in Montreal, en français, and so she was performing in, you know, she can't make those people who only speak English happy and she can't make the French happy. She may, she's just in conflict. She's not having a very good time performing in Montreal. So her idea was to go over and seek John Lennon's advice. That's how she ends up over there. And she just goes into the hotel, She knows, and they let her right up. And then that's the rest of the rock and roll story from Patula Clark. Um, there was another interesting interview that you and I were part of, uh, in 2000, I, I think it was 2003, maybe. Um, this is when Ringo Rama is released. Right. And, you know, we get the opportunity to go interview Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. I don't remember all the particulars. But Len, I'm it was David,
1: David Fishoff was the manager at the time, and he was promoting with Ringo. I've known him for a long time. So that, because he was in the room, if you remember.
2: David fishoff was right? Yeah. I can't, can't yeah. fully remember. but you see, I was I was a little bit nervous and um I'm glad you were there, but I, I think we pulled off stuff with Ringo that most people could not pull off and, and and this is the reason why. I was just talking to somebody about this today. The reason why I got away with certain things you were there is because I actually took the time under your direction to really focus on Ringo Rama and to make sure that I knew every single track in that album and that I started off the interview going over every single track, asking him about the Mellotron that he used on one of the tracks, mentioning the fact that his wife was on one of the tracks, and Ringo was he was eating my out of my hand. And at the end, I got him to give us that golden nugget, which is a question you gave me. What was it like coming over to the United States for the very first time while you're on the plane? He gives that famous answer. I was uh, high at 35,000 feet. Remember whatever. Zach,
1: you're absolutely right. And I have that piece and I now know where it is. I just recently used it on my, one of my podcasts because I said, look, I've interviewed Ringo a few times, but there's nothing like sitting there looking face to face (laughs) for Ringo Starr and have him explain to you what it was like. Because we've all heard those clips on news conferences, but he's telling it to us right right there in the room. The exact
2: I was flying high at 35,000 feet. I'll never forget that. And then, you know, I'd say, hey, Ringo, can you sign these drum skins? And, you know, that was like really pushing. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Great. And I think that was that was an example of how we would work together. Like we would be like the the good cop, bad cop, uh, you know, just frame it up. And you know me, like if Denny goes, Zach, this is how you handle it. I'm like, okay, I got you, Denny. I'll do it. And then I would
1: go do it. <laughs> now, Zach, <laughs> I know I... here's a little little piece of trivia. I don't know if it was, I think it was like a, just a couple months before this. We interviewed Pete Best.
2: That's right. You so we, and I... We've
1: done The Beatle
2: Drummers. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um. Now, the Pete Best story was interesting because his brother was Rogue. The, Rogue. the... Right, yes, the love child of Neil Aspinall and yep. Pete Best's mom. Mm-hmm. And Pete Best ends up talking about how he ends up having to basically depart the group because of that, I I would say that triangle that's going on right there. Very uncomfortable for everybody. So out goes Pete, in comes um, Ringo. Now this story goes back 20, over 20 years, uh, uh, just about 20 years ago. Yeah. Pete Best was there. Right. Almost 20. So it's hard to remember all the facts, but I, I just remember the emotion in the room and, you know, for those who are just listening right now, this is the Big Fat American Podcast with my longtime friend, Denny Somak, rock historian. When you and I were in that interview with Pete Best and his brother was there, it got very emotional.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that that's when you know that it is a, a good interview. And also at the same time, I don't think you and I ever really were inappropriate in our questioning. We, we were always delicate with that. And, and these are the facts that came out as part of the conversation. Pete Best, in relation to the history of the Beatles, since you brought it up, uh, take us through the like the little beginning story, the backdrop, and then if there were any details that I missed about his departure and that whole Neil Aspinall situation, <clears throat> maybe you can shed some light on that, because I don't think too many people are aware of what happened with Pete Best in the, early on in the Beatles.
1: Well, yeah, Pete Best's mother, Mona Best, ran, uh, actually was in the basement of her house. I, I think it was called the Casbah club. Yeah. Right. Or and was it the
2: cat? Was it the cavern or is that a different place? No, the cavern,
1: cavern is a different club. Ca- Casbah right. is what she called the basement. And that's, and, and, you know, P- Pete and the boys would play there. And she at that time was booking the band. Uh, and so, you know, really acting sort of like the manager as well. Um, and then, uh, they go to the audition. I'm trying to think here and make sure I got my dates right. Yeah, is right. Yeah, this is before the audition. Uh, one day, Pete gets gets called into uh, Brian Epstein's office and he's fired, and he never knows why. Uh, and Ringo comes in. He came in from another band uh, that was big uh, in Liverpool, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it turns out that Rogue, Pete's uh, stepbrother, was actually from a union of Mona Best and Neil Aspinall, who was the Beatles' road manager. They had had an affair. Right. And that's how Rogue came about. But they kept it quiet for a long, long time.
2: Yeah, and you and I are not saying anything that wasn't said to us in no, the past. If we right. looked uh, for the tapes, we'd definitely be there. So it's not like no. you know, idle gossip that we're right. or, you know, Spread, spreading rumors. Yeah. Um, now, um, so what ends up happening to Pete Best as a result of being fired? What was his life like? And then I guess when the anthology came out, he finally got a little something
1: out of that. Yeah, he got like $10 million uh, because Neil Aspinall is the one who decides who gets what on the un, on the unreleased stuff. And they wanted to include the uh, DECA audition tapes. So Neil said, you know what? I, I think we should give Pete $10 million for his piece. On that, because this thing's going to do so well, and that really brought him flush. <laughs> but before that, he'd been touring. Now, remember, he was the most famous unknown in the <laughs> world. He even did—I don't know if you ever saw this—he did the TV show "I've Got a Secret." Oh, you know, I, I out I, and they go—you yeah. know, fired from the Beatles. <laughs> it was <laughs> unbelievable. But he, you know, and I, I'll tell you a funny Pete Best story if you want to hear it. Um, you know, I uh, I used to work doing some merchandising for Beatles, the Beatles, and I did a lot of stuff with QVC. I was on there like 20, 30 times selling the prints that I had. And one of the days uh, Pete Best was on selling bricks from the Cavern Club that he was huh. signing. I don't know if you remember that. He was on the same day I was. And I said to him, I said, hey, Pete, what are you doing tomorrow? Would you come by my office? Because I lived right near QVC. My office was I said, I'd like to do a full interview with you. So he said, okay. He comes over to my office and we're doing the interview and we're all done. And of course I got my book and I got that famous picture of the Beatles in the cavern with the, you know, the drug. And I asked Pete to sign the book and he says, that'll be 25 bucks. (laughs) I said, what? He goes, $25. I said, well, uh, okay. I gave him $25. I said, would you also sign this? He goes, $25. And I realized this guy makes his living signing his name. No, no. exceptions. Cost me 50 bucks. Hmm. Fair enough. I mean,
2: how else was he going to make a living? I mean, right. you got to do what you got to do. And this yeah. is obviously before he gets his 10 million
1: from the right. anthology. Yeah, That's right. But he had a the Pete Best Band toured and it was sort of a novelty. But, you know, he was able to make a living. Uh, but there were a few years there where he was working in a bakery and all sorts of other things. That's yeah, so. kind of sad.
2: But, you know, all right, all is, all is well then. Well, what a
1: story he could tell at parties, right?
2: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Especially the whole thing with his mom and stuff. I, You and I just looked at it like, I cannot believe what we're hearing here. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there was another moment that we'll get to later that, uh, you know, involved Led Zeppelin that you and I were in the same room and we couldn't believe what we were hearing either. That's right. just a little bit of a tease. Um, if you were to take um, Pete Best and Ringo Starr, and try to, you know, rate them as drummers. Um, is there a way in your mind to say who is best out of Pete Best and Ringo?
1: Well, I think Ringo had, um, I, I think Ringo had a certain style that people still talk about today. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pete was a good drummer, but Ringo was a great drummer.
2: So so you, you might say that, it, however it happened it was really best like really the best thing for the beatles to have ringo replace pete as a drummer when you look at the the overall picture it, it really made the most sense yeah right i yeah. mean it's, if you're the odd man out it's not fun i've i've been in that situation many times no one wants to be the odd man out but in the long run somehow some way it all seems to to work out in the end right. um you, another thing that we've 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 discussed in the past that I really find very interesting is uh, Paul McCartney as a musician. Mm. And, you know, this idea that, you know, he played the bass for the, for the Beatles, but when, when we used to do the list um, and and you and I've, we, this is what guys do. Like, all right. A lot of times you get the top, top guitar players of all time, top rock vocalists, top drummers, but we never discussed the best uh, bass players. Uh, I think Chris Squire, because of you and and your interpretation of, of bass players, goes right almost to the top. And, and it, it's like a 1A, 1B between Paul McCartney and Chris Squire. That's where I've gotten to to the point of bass players. Describe to us in your mind, Paul is a bass player, where he, uh, I guess, compares to other bass players, and, and who is in that, at least the top five list in your mind?
1: Well, I, I, that's an easy question, because I've I've talked to all of them, and every one of them I've asked who their influence was, and it's usually one of the others, but all five always cite McCartney. Now, the other ones that I've uh, uncovered, John Entwistle, because people feel he sort of played the bass as a lead instrument. It was sort of different. Yeah. Even Chris Squire said that uh, John Entwistle heavily influenced him. Uh, And then Bill Wyman influenced a a lot of people as well. Um, And I think those, uh, and then if you really go to the next level, you know, you got the ones that are obvious, the John McVie's of the world and, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
2: How about John Paul Jones?
1: John Paul Jones, uh, believe it or not, um, Phil Lynott. Okay. And Lizzie, considered one of the greatest. Absolutely.
2: You know, um, and and we're gonna just uh shelve that John Paul Jones because we got some stories about John Paul Jones to to tell as well. Um the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You know, there is the the legend that goes between the two, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, what's your take on how much of that was fact and how much was fiction?
1: Uh again, it was really uh it it wasn't all fiction, but it was mostly fiction because and it was dreamed up by Andrew Lou Goldham who was managing the stones and he used to work for Brian Epstein so he figured (laughs) oh let's uh you know know? and they had these because he would send out stuff pictures of the stones now you remember the pictures of the stones when they first came out their hair was longer than the Beatles I mean Uh today's standards it's not that big a deal but if you remember there was a famous uh ad or story, I think, in one of the English uh, papers that said, would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone? These guys are... Compared to the Beatles, they're just not clean. They brag about not taking showers. Uh, They look like they smell. Yeah. (laughs) There was a whole thing built up around that.
2: So, Didn't the Beatles uh, give the Rolling Stones one of their first
1: uh, songs? Yeah, what happened was... um, The Beatles went to see the Stones play, and they knew each other, obviously. And uh, John and Paul were in the back of the room, and after the Stones got done, and Bill Wyman told me this because he was there, obviously, uh, Keith and Bill and Mick uh, walked over, you know, and they said, hey, uh, we have a song for you. And they gave them a song. um, (laughs) Yeah. I want to be – I'm sorry. I I want to be – I want to be your man. Yeah. Which was really nothing more than a rewrite of I want to hold your hand.
2: Mm-hmm. But <laughs> that's, it, that's that's
1: it, that's what it was. If you listen to them uh, and they they said, oh, this is great. Uh, I want to be your man. This is perfect. Uh, yeah. They said, yeah, it's, it's Ringo's song. He does it live, but we haven't recorded it yet. Uh, so you guys can have it.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Pick on Ringo. Take it away from him and give it over to the Rolling Stones. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Now, you know, you're talking about marketing of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Yeah. And I can remember reading somewhere. It could have been in one of your books. Early on, somebody would go in. I think this was when the Beatles go to Germany and they're playing in Hamburg. Someone would throw photos of the Beatles out on the floor. You ever heard that story?
1: Someone would do what?
2: Throw photos, publicity photos everywhere. The Beatles, the floor in the clubs. That's a new one. Must have, must have read. See, find something. I, I will have to research. Is it true? What were some of the marketing tactics used by the Beatles? And you just gave us one example with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. That kind of back and forth. What were some of the very interesting marketing ideas that you you look at some of these groups, particularly maybe the Beatles, and you go, "Man, that's brilliant. I can use that today."
1: This PR yeah. kind of maneuver. You got to remember, uh, there was no rules. Brian Epstein really was the first rock manager. So he didn't know better. He just did stuff. And whatever right. worked became like legend. But he made a lot of, lot of mistakes that you later found out about. One was the famous merchandising deal, which he made for the Beatles. He was uh, at the Plaza Hotel. Uh, and everybody was coming in and trying to make deals for the Beatles. And this company uh, came in. And they said, listen, we want to do dolls and shirts and we want to make a merchandising deal with the Beatles and we're going to pay you a royalty. And Brian Epstein said, well, okay, uh, I don't know why anybody would want to buy this kind of stuff, but yeah, that's that's fine. Uh, What's the deal? And they said it's 90, 10, 90 percent, 10 percent. And Brian goes, fine, I'll take the 10 percent. Well, Yeah, that was a bad, bad move. We we meant. They meant the other way around. Oh, but the, oh my he, gosh! He oh, didn't so know.
2: You know what? When you're a businessman, and someone goes, "He only wants ten percent fine. I'll give you ten percent." Yeah, I get
1: it. The other major thing that they did that again, and and I, I've known all this from hanging out, uh, spending some time with Neil Aspinall because he knows everything that went wrong. He's passed <laughs> too. When they went, when Walter Shenson met with Brian Epstein to make uh, the Beatle movies. Um, he said, I want to do a deal for three, three movies. And, uh, we're going to give you a percentage and all sorts of other rights. And, and Brian said, no, 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 the guys need to make $25,000. We want you to pay $25,000 for them to be in the movie. And we get the sound, you know, United artists basically did the movie because they wanted the soundtrack, which was on United artists, but they, the Beatles thought they could sneak an extra album out, which they did. Uh, which was the soundtrack. And then, of course, the other picture was Help, and the third one never was made. Um, but Walter Shenson technically, I mean, got the Beatles for $25,000. That's why for years, uh, Hard Day's Night never came out on home video because they were fighting over the rights. Nobody could believe the Beatles had given up their rights because they wanted twenty-five grand, which was a lot of money back then. And you got to remember, nobody knew if the Beatles were going to be around more than a year or two. So they figured, let's take it while we can get it.
2: Yeah, honestly. I mean, Bill Wyman said that himself. He had no idea that it would be successful as it was. That's why yeah. He, yeah, he collected all that stuff and made that, that amazing book, if you remember. Yeah. I think he mm-hmm. might have even been there for that interview. Um, now let's, we, we spent a good time on, on the Beatles and, you know, down the road, we'll have another uh, interview with you, Danny, and we'll talk more about the Beatles because there's always so much to talk
1: but for the, sake may, of the time, may I mention that I have a book, uh, a new book out called yes, "A Walk Down Abbey Road." A walk down Abbey Road. I like that. And uh, the foreword was written by Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. Oh, nice! And it's all sorts of people, like my previous book, uh, talking about the Beatles stories, Beatles stories by other people.
2: Well, here's what we'll do: we'll we'll do a full interview just on that book, and we'll go uh, a walk down Abbey Road. So that, that'd be really interesting. I'm going to get a copy, but I'm going to buy the copy. I don't want you to send me the copy. I want to do it the old-fashioned way. Okay. I want to and
1: by the way, there. there's a. I brought some clips along. I brought a Billy Joel clip if you'd like to play it. I, I, I got and-
2: those, but under the under the constraints of this technology, I yeah. can't unfortunately play it. But I do know what it is. We got Billy and, – and we'll play it uh, later on. We got okay. Billy Joel on The Beatles – uh, we also have Robert Plant talking about Led Zeppelin and we'll expand upon that. And we got Sam Cushing's uh, in his book. That's coming out. in September. Amazing, book.
1: Amazing, amazing
2: book. Amazing book about John Bonham. Uh, you know, even the young kids today are mesmerized by John Bonham. Uh, I mean, they just did, they eat the stuff up. I mean, Led Zeppelin, uh, we're going to talk about that right now, has found a way to reinvent themselves time and time again. And there was a point in, I think it was, believe it or not, seven years ago, Denny. You know how I can be. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of a curmudgeon. I might be younger than you, but I'm more of a curmudgeon than you. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so uh, I call up Denny. Uh, Danny, Jimmy Page is in town. He wants to interview him. Yeah? I don't know. Oh, I don't feel like doing it. <laughs> I go, I don't feel like schlepping. It's like five blocks away. You want to do this? You, you, you want to interview Jimmy Page? I know you're into this stuff. I did and you said something, Zach, you're insane. He, this is probably going to, he's in his seventies or whatever. And he goes, you're not going to get too many more opportunities to interview Jimmy Page. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I went over there and I did a, I think one of my best interviews yeah. of all time. In fact, yeah. in the big uh, Fat American series, it's episode number one, I think along with Paul Rogers. So we Okay. together. Yeah. Um, and, and some source material that, that you've, you've used the questions I got to say were phenomenal. Um, they were from a guy named Adam Fendrick because I, I was going to go, all right, well, if you guys at, um, whatever rock network, it was, it might've been for Western one. It was for Western one. So if you guys want me to go and do this, I don't mind, but, uh, you got to give me the questions. Cause I, I really don't have time to, to prepare. So that's a good producer. Like, what questions do yeah. you want me to ask? So I got over there, and and it was one of the greats. Now, there was another instance where I blew an interview. And thank God you were there. You were there with Mike, uh, that famous uh, talk show host. Now that? at the time,
1: he was nobody. You didn't yeah, know him, well, right?
2: Yeah, I, yeah, he was big in Philadelphia.
1: I'll give you, yeah, I'll give you the, he was the talk show guy in Philly. He was a friend of mine. We used to go to concerts together.
2: I can't say his last name. I don't know how to say it.
1: Smirconish.
2: Smirconish that. Mike, Mike Smirconish.
1: He's on SiriusXM XM now, and he's on CNN. He has a hit show every yeah. Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. He's very he well- by the,
2: the way, a lawyer, time. right? He was originally a lawyer? He Yeah. Yeah. Leave, so, leave something for us dumb broadcasters. He's got to be a great broadcaster, too. I'm not a lawyer in my spare time.
1: He's, Zach, he's a natural. That's yeah. what happened with him. But anyway, leading up to it, I said to him, I said, look, my friend- is going to interview Robert Plant and he asked me to come up. So I'm going to go up. I can let you know tomorrow. Cause I, Robert, that was his ultimate and let you know how it went. He goes, can I go? And I said, can you go where? And he goes, Can I go with you? And I said, you really, he goes, I'll take off the day. I'll carry the equipment. I said, well, I don't know what, if Zach will, I said, just come along and I'll just say you're a friend of mine. You're helping me with the equipment. Because you oh, know how I am, what do I do? I go, yeah, I don't give a shit. You know, yeah, like that's. Right, how I no, am. I know I'm that. But, so Michael is sitting there in amazement uh, during the watching us do the interview, and he just couldn't believe it that he actually met Robert Plant.
2: Well, and and here's what happened to me. Usually, I don't get. Uh, I'm like a NASCAR driver. I mean, I I really don't really get all that nervous in most situations. Right. I'm really really good at that but I wasn't firing on all my cylinders. I wasn't feeling well. There was something just not quite right with me that day. Luckily you were there because the interview, I couldn't have like asked the worst, the most worst questions you can think of, even though I tried to prepare, I was just off my game. So then you come barging in and somehow we get him to talk about one of the, 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 the stories that nobody would even dare say to Robert Plant. This is great. See, a lot of people don't realize that Led Zeppelin one, Led Zeppelin two, and and many of the tracks that Led Zeppelin has produced over the years are actually cover songs yeah. of famous blues artists. Right. And Willie Dixon. When you hear the original from the Chess box set, because it was on that label, yeah. um, you can definitely hear that. Well, that is just note for note, almost word for word, a Willie Dixon song. Whole oh, lot of love. Right. You couldn't even believe it when the following happened. So I'm going to let, I'm going to send it over to you. You pick up the microphone cause you see me struggling and Mike uh, Smirkanish, whatever, however you say his name is there. So now I'm really embarrassed in front of everybody, but you come in and save the day. So why don't you take us through that part of the interview with Robert Plant, which is a classic, by the way.
1: I don't remember what you're referring
2: to. You, you asked him questions about Willie Dixon and a whole lot of love and Robert Plant admits to. Oh, did he say, yeah, we stole that? Well, he didn't say steal. He said something like, we nicked that. He goes, he went like this. You asked him about it. He goes, well, it's true. You know, like he he doesn't deny it. And so your response is like, I cannot believe that he actually admitted that. You know, like, you know, it was just a mind blowing thing.
1: Now I'll tell you something else. If you remember, I don't know if you were aware, but I brought along my copy of hammer the gods and asked Robert to sign it. I don't think he realized what he was signing because I have one of the only signed copies by somebody from the band. Cause they oh, wow. hate, that's, that's I hate awesome. that book.
2: The, yeah. I, he probably, well, he, he wasn't was, looking, you know what? I, I flustered
1: him because yeah. there was this. But Do you remember the other thing, how we ended the question? I asked him that I've been dying to ask him. What did you ask? Okay. Let's see if you remember this right at the end, I waited till the end. Cause I didn't know if he was going to get pissed. Or not? Wow. I said, so Robert, have you ever, I said, what's your favorite cover version? And he goes, well, there's this version of Stairway to Heaven to the music of Gilligan's Island. I think it's fantastic. It's really funny. Unfortunately, it, our man, somebody in our management thought we didn't like it and they had it stopped, but I thought it was hilarious. Do you remember him saying that? I don't remember that, but I do. Well, it's uh, at the end of the interview, yeah. At, at the, the, end end the end of the interview,
2: interview. But I, let me let me add insight to the whole interview because it's there's more to the story. But did, we didn't bring up the whole spirit and tourist thing at that one, no. Did we? no, no, we wouldn't have done it. So, um, Robert and I now, Danny, you know that, that the reason why I think I get along with a lot of these personalities is because I have boundaries that you should not cross. I don't know if I come across as kind of mean or that army officer comes through the sergeant comes through but I definitely have one of those personalities that you're like I don't know if I should really mess with this guy right. so Robert plant starts to piss me off during the interview if you remember I'm starting to now I'm getting annoyed and you know when I'm annoyed because I'm looking yeah. at you like I'm good I'm sort to God I'm gonna kill him uh they're not covers they're interpretations I'm like okay great so I'm, I'm glad that you you interpret these songs at the end this is probably you already had left with Mike I go to him, I go, you know, Robert, I got, I got to congratulate you. I heard that you get in touch with your feminine side with a daily cry way to go. And you know, bravo for admitting it. And I walked out, he went the rest of the afternoon denying that he had a daily cry to get in touch with this feminine side. That's not true. I don't, I don't do that. Like, so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to like, you, you screw with me. You keep like poking at me. I'm, this is how I'm going to leave you. Um, the, the whole interview in itself to me ended up to be an, a, and I'm going to put, use this term because nobody ever does, a mitigated disaster because you were in the room and we had some sort of material to help save the day. And, and to this day, I think we still use remnants of that interview for, uh, you know, projects here and there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because that came out around the Dreamland album. So that, that's that exactly what we asked was. him about songs like "Hey Joe" and "Morning Dew" and "Darkness, Darkness," Moby right. Grape, and all of that
2: stuff. And he admitted he liked Moby Grape. Now, right. the problem when we went in there, they didn't decide on the album title. I only had a, the rough mix of everything, so trying to find out the information was really tough. But anyway, it was a learning lesson, and one of the most what what ended up being almost a disaster was a complete turnaround because of our ability to work off of each other. And we found hmm. something and then, you know, you get the famous talk show host that's in the mix. So you told me <laughs> he's going to replace Imus. I remember you saying that. I'm like, <laughs> Thick. you know, like, you know, there's a little jealousy there when someone's, I wanted to replace Imus. What do you mean? Of course I never replaced Imus. Um, that, then we had John Paul Jones in for a couple of shows. What yeah. we used to do is have him have a lot of these artists as guest hosts for Scott meaning right. because I thought that that would, you know, really add to what we were doing as a rock show in New York. It was very successful. Um, And uh, I thought John Paul Jones was really cool. And I don't know if you're aware of this and I don't know if you, you have a book about Led Zeppelin.
1: Get the Led Out. How Led Zeppelin became the biggest band in the world. That's right. Biggest band
2: in the world, even though they started out as a cover band.
1: Right. Just
2: kidding. Um, John Paul Jones this is the the weirdest thing I've ever had anybody say to me. He, you, you know, a lot of times, Denny, when we talk to musicians, the guy who plays the bass is not the best guitar player. Right. So it goes. All right, I'll I'll go over the bass. Not so, with John Paul Jones. This his he comes from a musical family. You know, his his dad I think played some brass and whatever. So he grew up around it. And he told me that when he was a little kid, he got his ukulele and tuned it to be a bass. That, that that's just like really interesting because who the hell really gets into the bass that like that? Where here's a ukulele, I'm gonna tune it into a bass. Right. And he's just always had the fascination with the bass. And it, and it was we were talking about how they would record and, and put certain tracks in various albums. He goes, there was really no thought behind it. I go, yeah, no kidding. Led Zeppelin one, Led Zeppelin two, Led Zeppelin three. I mean, yeah. There was no name in the fourth one. We could always talk about that too. Right. Um, but, you know, the idea that Houses of a Holy is on physical graffiti instead of on Houses of a Holy, I mean, that's just like, it's crazy. I mean, it's like, who is in charge of all of that stuff? But, you know, his, his whole orientation as a musician and playing around with those instruments. And when you get to In Through the Outdoor, really, it, it seems like Robert and John Paul Jones at the end for the recording of In Through the Outdoor, correct me if I'm wrong, are the only ones that are really putting some effort into that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, you know the story or not. I mean, the, the reason is because Robert and John Paul Jones showed up at the studio and Jimmy yes. was showing up five, six hours late because he, that's when he had yeah. a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to bring that kind of studio, stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. And they sat down the first day they sat down, they wrote All of My Love. And then Robert and, and John Paul Jones said, you know what? Let's just write a bunch more songs. Says, I don't know what, what Jimmy's going to do.
2: Yeah. So they, and you can hear the dramatic shift in the change of Led Zeppelin. And, you know, when you listen in through the outdoor and that change of sound, I think it's like, you know, their musicality is starting to explore with the new technology that's available. And, you know, John Paul Jones doing a lot of those sounds on the organs and the Moogs or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Then, then, you know, when, when they break up after the death of John Bonham, um, Robert Plant has his, his first, couple of solo albums. I thought to myself, you know, are these leftover tracks from the in through the outdoor session? So what, what, what went on there? I mean, you know, what, what's going on with that change in sound and, and are they leftover tracks or are these new tracks that what was the genesis of those?
1: Well, it wasn't leftover tracks. Cause if you remember, uh, they put out that album and I'm, Coda Coda, those yeah. are the leftover tracks. Yeah. And some early leftover tracks um robert you know remember he uh spent a couple years between uh the de- the demise of zeppelin and that first uh solo album so he had time to write mm-hmm.
2: okay now um when you go back into the catalog let's go back and reverse a little bit because I, I love talking led zeppelin i can do this all day long um the what are the best concerts i have ever seen i don't know if you if you've ever seen this but Early Led Zeppelin, when they're fulfilling the New Yardbird track, they're up in Scandinavia. Right. And I cannot believe how tight they are as a band. And I I here's the other thing that blows my mind. Do you remember in the 80s, Denny, when the lead singers of these bands didn't feel like they were musicians because they weren't playing any instruments? Remember that? So yeah. you have you have um Eminence Front, Roger Daltrey and dan, 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 dan. Oh, well, great, Rod. You can play two notes on a guitar. Fantastic. You have Mick Jagger picking up an acoustic. Hey, look, I know how to play guitar. It seemed like everybody wanted to prove to the world that they were not only lead singers, but musicians, because their egos yeah. just can't handle it. But they gloss over the fact that, holy cow, Robert Plant plays one of the meanest harmonicas I've ever heard a human being play. I mean, we never talk about that. Yeah. Talk about Robert Plant and and how he enters the fray with the New Yardbirds and they go on the Scandinavian tour. They're tight. I mean, they have it all together. And I'm just I'm blown away by how they were able to do that.
1: Well, here the the secret is there's no secret. I mean, they basically started to rehearse and put together songs that was going to be their show, but included songs that was ended up on the first album. And that's the reason they went in the studio and cut that first album in a week for $1,700. That's a famous story. Really? $1,700? $1,700? Wow. 1,700 bucks? 1,700 pounds. 1,700 pounds. 1,700 pounds, okay. Give me Paige, I'll tell you he's got the receipt, so he knows exactly how much. Uh, and what they all they did was they went into the, to the studio and they cut all the stuff they'd been rehearsing, and it turned out to be what they were doing live. They were doing... Um, Dazed and Confused, because the Yardbirds were doing that. Yeah, uh, the different
2: you lyrics for the Yardbirds, right? Pardon me? There were different lyrics with Dazed and Confused for the Yardbirds, originally.
1: Uh, no, there's a guy named Jake Holmes who wrote that song. The Yardbirds heard it when they played at the Anderson Theater in New York. Uh, not the Anderson Theater. Uh, the, I forget the name of the theater. It was whatever the Fillmore was called before it was the Fillmore East. And I can't remember now. So, so
2: long ago, down, I can't.
1: Town hall or something like that. It was the Yardbirds, the Youngbloods, and this guy named Jake Holmes. And Jake Holmes did a song called I'm Confused. And I have all this on tape. Jim McCarty, the drummer, said, and Chris Treya, the bass, said, I remember this guy, he was our opening act. He did this song called the and Confused.'" Confuse. And I thought, Oh, that's a good song. We should do that. So the next day. I went down to Bleecker Bob's in the village to get a copy of it. Oh, I see. And I ran into Jimmy. Jimmy was also buying a copy. <laughs> and we started fooling around with it and we just added it to our set. You know, that reminds
2: me, some things never change. You know, it's not uncommon. I've asked Jimmy this. What do you do? Oh, I like to go to record stores. So you can be around Manhattan, especially yeah. before COVID-19. If Jimmy's in town or Robert, you'll see them at record stores. They, yeah. they can't get enough of this stuff. It's yeah. amazing. Um, you know, then there with um days and confused, especially in the live and I'm not sure in the recorded version. Uh Jimmy uses a bow. Okay, yeah, and he got the idea, and you you told me about this, and it just so happens that my daughter Sophie found Making Time by the creation, and it's one of her favorite songs. Unbelievable, Unbe- would- totally un you know, like not even she did have no idea about the story, right? She finds it on her uh, on her own. And that led it to the conversation of, well, you know, the guitarist, Mark Phillips was the guy. Yeah. I think so. I think that's he would, Yeah. He would use the bow and Jimmy was like, Hey, it's a good idea. I'm going to try that one.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, so they were really good at borrowing from people. That's what I'm gathering from, you know, the whole lead one story.
1: Yeah. Now Jimmy, Jimmy retained everything.
2: Yeah. Well, that leads me to this. That I'm blown away by this, Denny. We, you and I were. I would um, say so we go back to this this interview in Soho. This is where this happens with me and Jimmy. And uh, there's a lot of other radio people there. Some mm-hmm. of the usual suspects, including Carol Miller, who in New York hosts "Get the let Out," and you help her produce that. And and so that's a great combination. But so she's there. I'm there. Jim Kerr's there. A few others. But I'm I'm on the Westwood One thing, so I you know I got the little like preference because it's right. nationals. I like I get in there, and the one thing, and I don't know if it came in on the interview or not, but I was like you know, and and we all know that he had some abuse problems. He's clean and sober, by the way, right? And, and he's very proud of that. I wondered, Jimmy, can I just I, I I really need to know how the hell? And I didn't use hell. I used the F. F-bombs. How did you keep that so well organized that you can go in there and, you know, remaster this stuff and know what you want to do in detail. Uh, Who does it? I mean, you're really good. You're very organized, but I am not organized like that. How did he do it? Do, Do you have any insight about how some of these groups, whether it's, you know, Jimmy Page or whomever, how they can be so organized 50 years later they're able to pull the resources and, and, and remaster things.
1: Because it, to, to them, especially Jimmy, who the secret, one of the secrets to Zeppelin's success is the fact that their records were tremendously produced for the most part, even though there'd be uh, a great engineer and Eddie Kramer, a, you know, a Glenn Johns or whatever, Jimmy was the producer of these records and knew exactly what he wanted to do. So really when he went back to remixing everything, he was just, you know, he already he already did it. He did every little thing he had already done. It wasn't like he was going to visit something thinking now, gee, what would the producer, he was the producer.
2: Yeah, but so still, he knew exactly 50, what to do. I mean, when you're blitzed out of your mind and, and then 50 years later, you're sitting yeah. behind the board again. I know that's to me a, a genius.
1: He because- probably used, uh, this is because a lot of people do this. this, isn't unique to him, probably used the, uh, the notes he had from the studio the fate, you know, where different things were.
2: Right. Again, copious yeah. notes. I mean, I don't do it's that. True. You know, like it's, it's amazing that that's just in itself is a, a, a story. Yeah. Now, now let's fast forward because we can talk about all kinds of uh, let up on again. game. We can do this uh, another time and continue. But since that you have this uh, CM Cushing's book that's coming out in September, yeah. and I do believe that you are the only person that had the exclusive interview with the author that nobody else is going to interview. Yeah. Until after the book is out, kudos right. to you, Danny Somak, for pulling it off. Um, give Um, us a little bit about uh, what we can expect in, you know, it's September when we lost John Bonham. I remember as a kid, you know, hearing yep. the news, very upsetting to me. The book, The Beast, it's coming yeah. out about John Bonham. What where, where are some of the, well, you it's don't have a, to, you don't have to make it, you know, know.
1: It's the first, I'll send you a copy of it, by the way. I have a, rough you know all right that's good not even it's just now going to the the public you know the press but i've got the rough um it's the first book really about john bonham specifically i mean obviously he's in all the zeppelin books but aside from the book that i think his brother wrote um this is the first book on specifically john bonham and his whole story and that's what makes it really unique. This guy did research. Now, his previous book was a bestseller. He he did the um, I'll sleep. Uh, I think he did the Warren Zevon story. I, I forget what it was called, but that was his previous book. Mm-hmm. Um, I sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead, or whatever it was called. But it, it got great critical acclaim and everything. And then you know, this was his. This is his follow-up book, even though it's several years after. Um, so the guy's a great writer. And the other thing that's interesting. And I realize that when we're in the middle of the interview, this guy's, even from you, he's one generation removed. Zeppelin was hardly, uh, they weren't, they weren't even together when this guy was born. Born. He's in his late (laughs) thirties.
2: Oh my gosh. Okay. He's, he's, you know, yeah. So that's tremendous. He was able to, well, that's sometimes better because I think you can be more objective. Yes. In the he found out stuff
1: though. There's great stories in there. I didn't know this. Uh, John's father had a construction company called Bottom Construction, had and no he worked for his father. And he said it was a family business; had been around for a couple generations. He and his brother both worked there. And when he would come off the road, he would fill in. He'd be out there helping his father build houses. And they got the they kept the construction company going throughout everything, yeah. and and he talks. Also, about how much John Bonham was a family man. I mean, we all heard the stories about the destruction of the the rooms. But when it came to fooling around on the road, he was so in love with his wife, Pat. And, 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 you know, Cushing tells me that they just had an amazing love story. Yeah. Uh, And and that's really what kept him uh, steady. Yeah, I mean. mean, He he only was married once.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at (laughs) Bonham. You look at Bonham and and he's like, you think he's like animal from the Muppets, like the the way he's depicted, but yet he's the one that's the most stable out of the bunch. I mean, yeah, he did like to go out for beverages out in the tiles and all of that stuff. We're aware of that. And uh, of course, the the demise, Um, which, you know, I, I guess does, does he talk about that final day of John Bonham's life in the book?
1: Well, yeah, but as good as you can get, I mean, nobody really, I mean, he had 40 shots of vodka and then went to bed and, and John Paul yeah. Jones is the one that found him the next morning.
2: Yeah. Oof, I just, you know, yeah. And then, um, before we leave, uh, because I, I want to save some, some more for down the road. Cause I, I you and I can talk Zeppelin and Beatles and it never gets old. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to put some of that on the shelf in the meantime, you can go to Denny, dennysomac.com. What can we find on your site? What is Denny doing now?
1: Okay. Well, I'm I'm sort of it's a place for me to archive a lot of the interviews, the thousands and thousands of interviews that I have. I put some some clips up and also I have video interviews as well. And they're oh, up yeah, too. some of
2: your videos are really good, by the way.
1: Well, one of them is Robert Plant. I don't even know if you're aware of this. You remember the show Friday Night Videos on NBC?
2: Yeah, that's, that's, yes, I, of course I do, but I, you know. Yeah, I
1: mean, it's it's been off the air. 50 years ago since. Well, no, 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 it came out 80 years ago. It lasted 81 to 91, it was on TV. Anyway, I was one of the people that helped create that show at NBC, and I was working as a, a, I don't know what the title of the game, I can't remember, program consultant, or but they hired me to do interviews. The first interview was Robert Plant, and it was the first interview he gave when the solo album came out, since the demise of Zeppelin. We did mm. it at the Plaza Hotel and ended up on Friday Night Videos, It's about a five-minute interview. For years, I, I I couldn't find it. I didn't. Have, I thought I had the original tape, but I didn't. And then a couple of years ago, I found it. So I put that up there. You can see that. On well, that's store. cool.
2: That reminds me, the Plaza was where we interviewed Ringo. Right. That's where the Beez- Beatles would always go. Be- you know, I, I yeah. was thinking about that all freaking day. Where was now, I, what,
1: What's It's also on my site is uh, Bono, first American interview from 81, 82. And he's talking about the name of the band. And, you, know, you, just, you look at it, it's a 19-year-old Bono.
2: Yeah, that's, that's cool. Thinking he's advanced, right? Like like, it's yeah. like he's so sophisticated, you know? we a- did the
1: interview. I did it with a friend of mine uh, who was doing a TV thing, uh, Cindy Drew. And uh, we, go, we do the interview, and then we go over to the place called the Bijou Cafe to see them. You mm-hmm. two first tour in America. And there's 19 people in the audience. That's it. And, and us. <laughs> and, and when we're, we're, we got done with the interview, Bono goes, Oh, uh, I got to get to the Bijou. And Cindy said, Oh, well, I got my car. I'll drive it. So she drives him over to the Bijou. I had something to I, do because you know, who's you two. Like I was going to worry about it. You know, I'll go see him at the Bijou because we were used to going to three and four shows a, a week. Um, and it, it just, I look back on it now and I go, holy mackerel, that, that's amazing.
2: You know, I, I think we all have those stories, you know, yeah. where you're interacting on a personal level with certain people end up superstars. For me, yeah. you know, there's probably a few, but the, when you said that, I don't know if you remember this one, but uh, Paul Rogers came over and uh, Bad Company was doing some special concerts, I think for nine eleven could have been. Right. And we get done with our little interview, little interview, our interview. And I said, Well, you know, you want to go over to the fire night with me, visit a guy, say hi. I'm sure that they would love that. He goes, Yeah, okay. So it's Paul Rogers and I, I whatever is on 9th, 9th Avenue and, and 50th or 49th, 9th and 49th is this firehouse where they lost a lot of guys right. as a result of 911. So Paul and I are having chili. And that's where Paul and I bonded. We we come back and I go, you know, those are the heroes. Because he yeah, man. And then every time he comes to town, he'll invite me to the show. And anytime he's got CDs out, oh, should I get some for the boys? You know, yeah. over at the firehouse. So yeah, those like little stories really matter the most. The idea that hey, you were there at the Bijou with you two with nineteen people, and you got to see, you know, you two really, in many ways. The best version of you, too, some people would say, was yeah. at the
1: very beginning. You know. That, by the way, Zach, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9/11. You should, yeah, I that know. Story. That's a great story. You should leak that out. I will,
2: and I know some. There's there's a concert being planned. Yeah. For the 20th anniversary, and I don't want to give too much information because I don't want to get anybody in trouble because it was told to me by secret, right. but it includes some real biggies, but there's one one little problem that might hold it up and it's over politics. And that is unfortunate because I think that, yes, I think that when it comes to that and there are people that are part of the story, however you feel about certain politicians now, back then they were part of the story. So for one day, can you just can your political point of view and get up there on stage and not fight about it? You know well, what I
1: mean? That's amazing. Yeah. So,
2: so, so that's the one I think bump in the road and hopefully that gets ironed out. We'll get it
1: resolved. Yeah. yeah
2: they got it. Some people got to put on their big boy pants.
1: Now let me ask you a question. Yeah. Cause I don't know if anybody's brought this up to you. I noticed it right away and I figured, Oh, here's great opportunity to, even if it's not true, it's a great rumor. And by the way, it could very well happen. If you looked at the list of people that they're talking to for that concert. Yeah. Paul Simon's there. I bet you there's a reunion right in the middle because this is going to be in Central Park. Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. I don't know the location. Yeah.
1: Now, 1981, the famous reunion in Central Park happened. So it's the anniversary of that as well. Oh. And I thought that's pretty odd. Why would they get Paul Simon and not Art Garfunkel? Now, yeah, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, he does solo stuff. I just think that's the perfect opportunity for him to walk out and then the two of them do America.
2: You know, I, you know, bingo, Denny, see, this is why you're the great executive producer of all time on top of which being a rock historian. And you know what you're really good at? You're really good at like coming up with these what ifs and putting it out there. And sometimes they've had, had come true. Uh, You know, this reminds me of, I think it was you, you told me that Pink Floyd would do the one-off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, cause Nick it, Mason told me in an interview when his book was out before anything was announced. Like, okay. Oh. That was, he said to one. me, I said, so he goes, well, he goes, if it were something like live aid, so he, already yeah, you know what we would do. It. I was,
2: you and I were in the studio for that. Nick Mason was with me and we interviewed him again. And yeah. yes, that was a question that you gave to me to ask. And that was his answer that they gave. I yeah.
1: see I didn't have any significance was. because people are always saying, when are you going to get back together? But well, I'll tell you knew. what,
2: Mike, Rutherf- Mike Rutherford, Mike uh, Rutherford before the pandemic, when he had his Mike and the mechanics album out the last one, I asked him and I don't know, again, I lost this interview because I'm not really like a Jimmy page or a Denny Somac and keeping this stuff. Uh, he, he told me like, well, yeah. and And I think Emily and Sophie were there as well. I mean, you know, Mike Rutherford, uh, he had this book out. I just thought it was tremendous. So, you know, we put the whole family in there. You know, I like doing that. And he mentioned, oh, yeah, well, Genesis getting back together. What he did not do is say that Steve Hackett would be part of it, which uh, I asked Steve about that, and he was kind of interested. And he did not say that uh, Peter Gabriel would be part of it. So as far as this 50th anniversary of Genesis that's going to be playing in November in New York, kind of disappointed that, Steve Hackett and
1: Peter Gabriel aren't included somehow. Well, you know what? You know, there's a reason for that. They, they were going to do the five and they were going to do the entire Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and the whole bit. And They went out and they asked the promoters. They said, look, do you want the original five guys or you want the hit version of the three? And all the promoters, right to a, no, a one, Said, we want the one with the three guys. Most people don't care. They don't, they'd like to see Peter Gabriel and they'd like to see, uh, you know, Steve Hackett. But a lot of them, except for the really, I mean, they were only together in that configuration for like Mm -hmm. five years. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I get it. I get it. But still kind of nice. I mean, you can,
1: yeah, it would be nice for the hardcores like us, but. Yeah. yeah. All right. Person, well, which is which is what they need to sell out three nights at Madison Square Garden these days, right? They need the, you know, the the hit band, the hit version. Well,
2: yeah, you need the hit, but you know, one of the three, you could always like. Now we're starting to sound like Mike and the Mad Dog of uh, of uh, rock and roll, but you can always, okay, you can always have that like one night out of the three. Yeah. Like the middle of the double header. you can have uh, the full complement of the original Genesis. Okay. Back after this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Denny Somak, for taking the time. I did not know that was the reason for that. That's that's yes. where the the damn promoters all over again. So go to demesomak.com. Hey, Denny, mention the books that you have out that are available through Amazon and booksellers.
1: Well, uh, my Get the Let Out, How Led Zeppelin Became the Biggest Band in the World. Uh, believe it or not, there's not too many. There's a couple of hundred copies left, and then it's sold out. And then there's a paperback version. And I think there might be a few of that. Uh, or, or actually the hardback is sold out. There's a few of the, uh, and I'm going to reissue it next year with extra stuff. And then my new latest book is called a walk down Abbey road stories about the Beatles by everyone from Steven Tyler. To, it's very similar to my ticket to ride book. Um, but, uh, Mickey Dolan's wrote the forward and that was kind of cool and it's in paperback and it's available everywhere. So it's also, there's an audio version of it as well.
2: Sophia's mission oh, inspires faith, hope, and charity to people living on the autistic spectrum and with disabilities. Sophia's in association with New HD Media creates meaningful opportunities and jobs for those with additional needs. Many of these jobs can be performed from home and are life-changing for neurodivergent and special needs
0: communities. For more information, go to SophiaNewHD.org.
2: Follow BFA on Facebook at Big Fat America, Zach Martin on Twitter at Zach and Zach Martin on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Wait, Zach is on Instagram? I can guarantee he has no clue how to use that. See all the interviews and videos at ZachMartinRocks.com.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: This is a message for anyone with high LDLC or bad cholesterol who has had or is at risk of having a cardiovascular adverse event. Merck is studying an investigational medication to see whether it may help lower the risk of future cardiovascular adverse events. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death worldwide, and in the United States alone, there are over 73 million people living with high LDL-C. To learn about whether you may qualify, visit coralreefstudies.com now. Again, that is C O R A L R E E F S T U D I E S.com.